all ninjas. Calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Today on Lime Ninja Radio. Um, the first purpose was really partly to just share my own story of going through chronic illness and to really help people not feel so alone. So a lot of my clients or people who contact me, they relate to the story. And that's a beautiful starting place um, for a lot of people. And then it's really to shift a lot of mindset pieces, you know, as we mentioned about the placebo and all sorts of work on kind of belief systems, just really changing that mindset um, from believing that, you know, chronic illness means, okay, this is like a life sentence, you know, your life is over or, you know, your life is significantly reduced to, no, that doesn't have to be the reality. I mean, I've seen incredible things happen. This podcast is sponsored by the Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. I'm so excited to tell you about our new Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker. One of the things I hear over and over again, whether it's talking to a patient in my office or consulting over the phone with a client, is just how difficult it is to keep track of progress on their Lyme journey. Recording symptoms daily or even weekly gives them too many data points. There are so many ups and downs, twists and turns that at some point they get lost and confused. The Lyme Ninja Symptom Tracker takes all the guesswork out of tracking symptoms with a simple monthly questionnaire. Once a month is the perfect interval to see if that new supplement or protocol is working. Right now, when you take the Symptom Tracker questionnaire, we give you a simple composite score for the month. But we have big plans and the data you enter will not be lost as we roll out new features. Best of all, it's free. Just head on over to LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker and sign up. That's LimeNinjaRadio.com slash tracker. You'll be glad you did. Join us every Thursday on iTunes for the latest episode of Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, I'm your host and Lime Journey Guide, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 224 with Lynn Del Mastro Thompson. Also, welcome our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, and in this episode, you will learn three main things. Why transforming your mindset from helpless to hero is crucial in your Lyme journey. How long it should take to adjust to having a chronic condition and some non-meditation techniques to help you reconnect with your body. Thanks, Aurora, and a big shout out to all you longtime Lime Ninjas. You're the reason we have half a million downloads. Aurora and I really appreciate you tuning in. And we'd also like to welcome all the new listeners out there. Welcome to Lime Ninja Radio. You are now officially a Lime Ninja. Yes, welcome. And as you know, Lyme disease is an international problem. Each week we have listeners join you from all over the world. This past week, we've had listeners tune in from Chile to the Czech Republic and from Turkey to Tanzania. Really? Tanzania? Yeah, we did. (laughs) Well, technically it's the Republic of Tanzania, but that's not alliterative with Turkey. So forgive me, Tanzania. (laughs) Yes, we know you're a republic. Well, we know now anyway. (laughs) All right, Aurora, tell us a little bit more about today's guest, Lynn Del Mastro Thompson. Lynn works as a certi- certified body talk practitioner at her heart fire healing practice. In her new book, You Are Not Your Diagnosis, she tells the story of her chronic illness, misdiagnosis, and how she became empowered to take control of her healing journey. Okay, McKay, why did you want to talk with Lynn? I immediately was drawn to the title of her new book which is you're not your diagnosis. And the first step of Lyme journey, you know, we're kind of, we're bombed, right? We're parachute into the middle of Lyme world. And some people get out quickly, get a couple weeks of antibiotics and they feel better and move on with their lives. And then there's the rest of us who struggle. We're lost, we're confused, we're really sick. Some of us are bed bound. I make me really brutal. And in the beginning, it's so easy to identify with the disease. I'm a Lyme patient, something like that. And the first step, I think, to getting better is really beginning to separate that out and moving on and really creating the mindset where you are the hero of your journey. And Lyme disease is just an obstacle to overcome rather than your identity. And I think Lynn does a really good job in her book to take us on that first step. So really, it's the first step of healing is getting a 
proper mindset. And I think this book goes a long way in teaching it. I'm sure you're going to enjoy our interview with Lynn Del Mastro Thompson. I am so excited to talk with you about your new book entitled, Are you, excuse me, you Are Not Your Diagnosis. And I'm so excited to chat about it. <laughs> well, then we're in the right spot at the right time. The reason I'm so interested in this, and this is one of those funny, you know, you're mentioning earlier Mercury retrograde, right? So is it the perception that makes it Mercury retrograde? retrograde or is it actually mercury mercury and retrograde that causes the the technical issues right so i i recently had this epiphany about lyme disease and the lyme community and the whole really it's it's almost the same subject as your book which is spooky so it's it's one of those things is is the universe aligning in the same way or is it simply that when you buy a red car all of a sudden you see everybody else owns a red car too it's always an interesting question, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know, but they, but so here's the, here's the deal. Here's here's I want to set up our conversation. So Lyme disease is unique and similar to many other chronic illness in that nobody plans to be diagnosed with fill in the blank cancer, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, Lyme disease. You know any any one of those type of diagnoses where. It's it's traumatic, and you know there's there, the treatment options are let's say interesting. Yes. Now the difference with Lyme disease and and actually some of the fibromyalgia is that way, lupus is that way. Some of these so cancer. Let's take cancer for example. Nobody wants to get that diagnosis. Heaven forbid anybody gets that diagnosis. But when you've got that diagnosis, this they've got a protocol for you. They've got a timeline for you. They have all these support. You get a nutritionist, you get a counselor. They have all these. You may not like your options in terms of treatment, but they know exactly what they're going to do and, and lay them lay them out for you. Mm-hmm. So it's very clear. So in some ways, we haven't planned on getting cancer, but there's a plan for people who get cancer. Now, yes. you take something like Lyme disease and you get the diagnosis, and they give you your fill-in-the-blank days of antibiotics, and then it's good luck. Right. Nobody's got an overarching plan. And I'm not talking about a protocol. There are lots of protocols out there, and actually some of them are comprehensive and cover some of the steps, but nobody takes you from like step one and walks you all the way through the ups and downs, the ins and outs, the switchbacks, and then on the other end helps you reintegrate back into what I'm going to call normal life. Mm-hmm. Very and true. that's when I started reading your book, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, we're on the same page here. I think so much part of the journey of chronic illness and especially certain kinds of chronic illness, it's like I, I feel like I was dropped down a rabbit hole when I got my diagnosis. And I think I've talked to many clients who feel that way as well. In my mind, the first step after recovering from the shock, and probably, you know, I shouldn't step over that. Let's talk about recovering from the shock of having a diagnosis. Sure. My diagnosis kind of came seemingly out of the blue. I was in graduate school pursuing a PhD in history. Um, I was scheduled for elective surgery, and it wasn't because I was sick with anything. It was truly elective surgery. And in that process of getting ready for that surgery and the pre-op blood work, that was when it was detected that there was something abnormal in my blood work. So for me, it was completely traumatic to go from thinking, here I am, 24 years old, just having elective surgery. It's I'm on summer break. Let's do it now. Let's do this thing. And then to be told, you know, no, we can't do this surgery, there's something going on, not being really given much information in that moment of, you know, what was being seen in my blood work, just it's abnormal, go see your doctor, your primary doctor, and then kind of this whole rabbit hole of like one specialist to another and being in a hospital. And it was like a very traumatic few weeks of one medical encounter after another. How long would you say did it take for you 
to integrate your diagnosis. Now, I don't mean come to terms with it and you know be complete with it, but just get past the initial, oh my God. I would say it took probably over a year, really. I mean, I was in shock for quite a while and maybe thought I had kind of somewhat processed it. But the more I kind of went through that period of that year, and then I had actually another compounding trauma of the sudden death of a friend, I realized I really hadn't processed it, wasn't in a place of it. I was just kind of existing. The reason I asked that question is, I think we have unrealistic expectations of what it means to kind of wrap your head around something. A year's a long time. It definitely is. But I think, you know, my experience too, I remember I was still in my graduate program and I was kind of being told, why can't you just get back to normal? Like, why aren't you working on your dissertation? Why aren't you moving forward with things? And I was like, because I'm not ready. But everyone expected me to just be like, okay, well, I have this diagnosis and now I'm taking these medications and I should just be fine. It's, I used to ask my patients, do you have any medical issues, any health issues? And sometimes you'd get an answer, but often it was an incomplete answer and often stuff that you just scratched your head with afterwards. So I learned instead to ask about medications because there's this ideal out there that condition or a disease plus a medication equals no condition. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I, you know, I'd be saying, so how's your health? Oh, my health is just perfect. Okay. And then at the end, oh yeah, let me, by the way, let me just get a list of the meds you're on. Are you on anything? And they give me a list of 10 different medications and seven of them would be for, let's say, uh, hypertension for high blood pressure. Mm. And I said, I, th I thought you said you didn't have any health issues. They said, oh, but it's under control. Yeah. I said, well, what, hap what happens when you stop the medications? Oh, it goes through the roof. Well, then it's not under control, is it? Nope, you're dependent on that medication to just kind of manage the issue, right? Yeah, and I think there's that expectation out in the world. Though what you beautifully said is that, well, you've got a diagnosis and you've got some pills. What what more could you possibly want? Yeah, yeah, you should just be fine. You should yeah. be smiling and ready to just, you know, go back to work or you know, go back to school, go back to whatever you were doing before, just just like normal. Okay. You get your diagnosis. It's traumatic. It takes a year to kind of just wrap your head around it. But then also you mentioned in your book, and we've, we've had various interviews about this in different ways and said different ways, but essentially being the hero in your own story, being the protagonist in your own story, being the one who's in charge of you and your health and not waiting for some miracle to come along and just whisk you out of this nightmare. Yes, very true. And I love the way you phrase that because I think there's that choice in, in having a diagnosis, whether we go from, you know, just saying, well, this is what I have. I'm going to sink under it. I'm just going to, you know, do whatever the doctors say, and that's as good as it's going to get. Or for me, it was making that choice. Like, this can't be all there is. It's just taking this pill that feels horrible, that makes me nauseous all the time, and just say, I'm 25 now. Like, this is how I'm going to live the rest of my life. And so I got proactive with, you know, exploring all sorts of alternative modalities because I thought there has to be something else out here. This can't just be the only solution for me. That's not the default way of being. The default way of being is I'll go to the doctor and he's going to help me decide what to do and then we'll take care of it. So how do you help your clients, your patients get from, I'm just going to say that this way, victim status. And I, I don't mean that in a mean way. I just mean that like, oh, this is happy to me versus, okay, I'm in charge of this. How, how do, you, do, you, do you have a path you take them through? I think a lot of the people that come to me are already sort of have opened that door because that's part of why they're 
seeking someone like me. They're not, if they were just happy with take a pill and this is as good as it gets, they probably wouldn't call me. But there is definitely a process of kind of doing some mindset work, doing some emotional clearing of, you know, the traumas that have happened and belief systems about what's possible for them that I definitely see as being part of the work with many clients. Because we talked about you know, you're you're parachuted into your diagnosis, right? You're put into a forest and there's no map to get you out of there. And <laughs> after first, you know, getting over the shock that, yep, this is my forest, right? What you said took about a year. Then, then there's the process of getting to the point of, okay, and I can't just sit here, you know, rubbing sticks together, trying to make a fire, waiting to somebody rescue me. I actually have to find my own way out of this forest. Now, I'm going to ask you the same question. So how long did it take you to get from, okay, my mind's wrapped around this problem now to, okay, I'm the one in charge? Or was were those the same process? I think the it was like the start of the same process, but I don't think I was fully in that place of seeing, you know, that I am in charge of my own health and well-being and that I had a lot more capacity to control certain things than I was led to believe. I think that was really a process with some of the practitioners and, and a therapist that I worked with early on. So, yeah. I, you know, I don't remember the exact timeline, but it was probably, you know, another six months to a year of kind of coming into that place. Wouldn't be, this is what, why your book is so amazing and so important. And this is the book nobody's going to want to read because it's not about what herb to take for what co-infection. It's not about how to detox. It's about how to get your mind right. Mm -hmm. And if if you're listening to this and you're spinning and confused and unsure what to do, this is the type of book you want to read. This is the book, let me put it this way, this is the book you want to read. And it's an easy read. It's a nice short read. It's not designed to, to uh, overwhelm you at all. It's actually designed to do just just the opposite of that. But getting getting the mindset right, if you can accelerate that, imagine that, if you can accelerate the process of going through the shock and grief and then getting on your own horse, you know, to, to find your way out of, out of that forest of confusion and, and doubt, then you, you're going to get better so much faster. Mm-hmm. Even in terms of encountering all the obstacles you're going to get on your journey, your Lyme journey, if you're the one riding the horse, then when something happens, you don't have to wait another six months to kind of come around to the next thing. You, you're the one saying, uh, you know what, this isn't working and I really appreciate, you know, you can say this to your Lyme literate doctor or acupuncturist or whoever it is that that you're working with at the time. You know, I appreciate what you've done for me. Uh, this isn't turning out as I had hoped and I'm not progressing. And, you know, I have plan B in my back pocket and we're going to try plan B now. So thank you very much. And you move on to something else. But if you don't have anything else, if you're not the one, you're, you're, you're going to the appointment saying, oh, you know, please help me. What should I do next? And as a practitioner, we've always got more ideas for you. <laughs> you know, I'm never at an, uh, you know, I'm never at a loss for a combination of acupuncture points to try or another essential oil or another Chinese herb or something. But that doesn't mean that that approach is the right one for the person. And and really, you know, ideally, a practitioner is in the position that they can see that as well. But we can't always. And, and a lot of times, it really does fall on the patient to, to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a big value for me in, in working with clients is really teaching people to be their own advocates as well. And that falls right in line with that. Because part of my own story was I knew that I had a misdiagnosis, like on a kind of a gut level, like something wasn't right, and nobody would listen to me. And so I think that all falls as, as part of that. Like if you feel like you're in charge of your health and something isn't right, then you're empowered to say, okay, somebody else help me, not you. <laughs> now, part of what you do is body talk therapy, yes. correct? And as I recall from my last conversation, that gut feeling, that intuition level feeling that you know the body's wisdom the brain's wisdom bubbles to the surface in in strange ways and subtle ways 
And can you talk about that? Because I think, you know, we get to the point where if you're in a ton of pain or you, your brain doesn't work right, that you kind of, like I had a patient recently who comes in and she's referring to her body in the third person. She's mm-hmm. given it a name because she's of her relationship with it, right? And she's trying to love it and she's trying to accept it, but she's having a tough time. And that's really unusual. Most of us don't refer to her yet, you know, like she's having a tough day, right? So in some ways it gives her some distance, right? That she's not her symptoms. But in another way, it's a a red flag to me that she's really distanced herself and and disconnected. And you talk about the complete opposite. So tell us about that. So one of the things that I'm just passionate about in the work that I do and and kind of body talk as a tool for that is really just understanding what the body is trying to communicate through whatever we're experiencing, whether that be a symptom, a diagnosis, you know, whatever that physical reality is on a day-to-day basis. So I can totally relate to that story of your patient doing that because sometimes it feels like that with chronic illness. It's, it's like I, my body is now not mine or, you know, I'm trying to kind of have some detachment from it. But I think you're, you're right. That's a red flag because we're detaching from the body's own wisdom. Like the body I like to say we don't have bodies don't have words. They can't say, excuse me, you know, you're eating something that's not right for you or that medication is just horrible. I can't tolerate it. It only has symptoms and, and sensations and pain to kind of try and bring our attention. And so I like to really help people shift into that mindset of understanding that it's not just, you know, an annoying pain or even more than just annoying, just like a life life altering, life ruining pain. It's the body trying to get their attention. And what if we can listen to it? What if we can be quiet and start to tune in to the message that it's trying to give us? That's a great question. So what happens when you do that? A lot of people, you know, at first, the the interesting experience with that is, you know, if you're especially like in that place of feeling detached from your body, initially, maybe you don't feel like you get that wisdom, you don't get that message. And so I encourage people that that's really a process too. like, it's kind of a daily practice of saying, okay, I'm going to ask this question every day, and maybe the first 10 times, I don't get an answer. But once your body kind of... like for that particular woman, it's like reestablishing that relationship with the body and the body starts to go, oh, you really want to know my answer? And usually we'll start to kind of get that intuitive sense of what it's about. I mean, intuition communicates to us all in different ways. Like some people will kind of like hear words. Some people will see a picture. You know, we all just kind of get that sense of what it's about, um, depending on how our intuition likes to communicate to us. Yeah, I'm trying to think. My mine usually when it hits me just is there's there're no words. There's not even it just feels right. I don't know how to explain it. That's yeah, it's like a knowing. Like I yeah. think what that's like claircognizance basically. It's like you just know that that's the answer or you just know that's the right choice for you. Yeah, it's funny. It's it's hard to explain. I don't <laughs> I don't talk about that a whole lot. Well, I think, you know, that's the interesting thing about intuition is most people think, oh, well, I don't see things. So I don't really have intuition or, you know, I don't get messages, but we all kind of have a way. It just, it may seem a little different. You know, some people just like, they feel something, they just have a sense of that. So it it doesn't have to be words or pictures, or it just can be a knowing. Now, to get to this place, your mind can't be full of, oh, did I remember to take out the trash? <laughs> the dog needs to be walked, those sort right. of things. How, how do you get to a place where you can hear these quiet whisperings that are really, really there all the time? It's usually just, I say, to carve out some time, usually guide yourself through a little practice of, you know, maybe taking some nice deep breaths, trying to just get more present, you know, knowing that, okay, in 10 minutes or however long you've dedicated to this, I can come back to whatever that is, my to-do list. But this is the time I'm just going to be quiet, I'm going to breathe, and I'm going to ask my body just these simple questions, of, you know, what what is the message? What do you want me to know? What do you need? from me right now. 
And, you know, at first, again, it's it's similar. It can take some time if you're not used to being quiet, if you're used to being busy a lot, you know, you can notice your to-do list wants to pull at you and, oh, I, I got to make that phone call or my dog needs my attention now. And so it's just bringing yourself back and like, no, I'm going to just practice this for five or 10 minutes. I'm just going to be present with my body and whatever wisdom it wants to give me. Maybe you won't hear anything that day. And I think that's that's another important ingredient is just kind of not being attached that you're going to have some profound revelation in that moment. Because sometimes we get frustrated, right? We, we think, well, I should just know what this is about. And, and then often the body doesn't really want to share because we're frustrated and we're impatient. <laughs> not me. <laughs> I'll, I'll find myself thinking about something. It could be a problem at work. It could be a patient. It could be eh, almost anything. And I have the. I'll. I'll, I'll find myself in a, in a slight when my mind is is uh, slightly quiet. I'll start with the phrase and so, and I'll tell myself and so, and then I get back to think. It's like a trigger to think about the thing. But whenever I like tried to power through. I, I basically am just entertaining myself while the back of the brain's doing the work. And eventually the answer shows mm-hmm. itself. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's in a conversation with somebody else. And sometimes it's just, I don't know, it just comes, it's like, oh, that's that's what I should have been thinking about rather than this. But I try, you know, a lot of times I do try and force things. Yeah, I think that's pretty common, you know, it's, and, and in a practice like this, it can be like, well, I, I've got to get an answer. Like, trying to kind of force it to the surface. And usually that's not very effective <laughs> in, in getting the result you want because the body's kind of like, well, you're trying to force me to give an answer. I, I view it like a relationship. If you're trying to force an answer out of a friend or your partner or whoever, they're probably not going to be very happy with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Last night I gave up and watched some rugby. <laughs> and sometimes you just got to do that too. You know, it's yeah. like, I'm not really, you know, same thing with meditation often, you know, sometimes it's like, I just can't right now and that's okay. I'll try again tomorrow. Now, I mean, part of this discussion that we're having now is reducing stress. Well, we were talking about this the other day is, okay, you need to reduce your stress. Uh, thanks. How? Right. Right. Yeah. It's like just being told you have to reduce your stress in and of itself is another stressful event. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Well, what am I supposed to do? Like I've got yeah. the to-do list that's, you know, longer than the length of my desk and how am I supposed to relax and reduce my stress? For me, it's definitely a process, you know, it's like, what is, what are one or two small things that I can do to help myself, you know, like I may still have that to-do list, but what can I, I do in this moment to just be a little more present with myself or help my body feel a little more relaxation and ease, you know, sometimes it's like taking a hot bath, going for a short walk, just being quiet, taking some breaths. I, I like to also say that it doesn't have to be really complicated because I think sometimes there's this whole idea, you know, self-care has to be expensive. We have to like go spend a bunch of money on it or, you know, if I don't have an hour to do self-care, well, then why bother? And it's like, it could just be five minutes and it doesn't have to cost you anything. <laughs> but, but, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the baby step approach is kind yes. of what I'm trying to hint at, you know, is that, you know, don't expect yourself to go from the long, long to do list to being completely Zen in, you know, one move. <laughs> and I do think personality is hugely important in this. For example, I can, my brain quickly shifts to something else and is very happy to just block out what I'm worried about. Right. So maybe mm-hmm. that's, you know, maybe that's my genes. Maybe that's being a man. I don't know. My wife, on the other hand, needs something that requires a lot of brain work. So she does Sudoku mm. at the end of the night to wind down. She could, right. She, if, if I asked her to just sit there and meditate or something like that, she would probably just 
wearing my neck. <laughs> but she's discovered she, for a while she was reading books. So something that really takes your mind over and uh, and squeezes out the thoughts of the day. It really it for on her part it takes an action. For me it just takes the decision. Okay, it's time to think about something else. And just um, I'm, right. my brain, I've got a hoppy brain. It'll just hop on over to something else. She has a very sticky brain. And mm -hmm. when, you know, if there's an unsolved problem, it's like she, you know, the brain's like, no, you can't let this go right now. You have to stay up till 3 a.m. to figure it out, even when it's unfigure outable, right? It's some, some things just are beyond her control. So she has to do something like Sudoku that just takes all her brain power to, to do. And it, there's nothing profound about Sudoku. Right, mm -hmm. you don't you don't go to Tibet and sit on the top of the Dalai Lama's <laughs> house and exactly. learn Sudoku. But and my point in in that, and I'll ask you, is like to name a few other things. Is like you know, what are the different ways that you found your clients and and that you recommend? You know, that are even totally different from each other to just toss out ideas. I'm going to challenge you a little bit. <laughs> I mean, some people it probably could, you know, depending on their health condition or whatever, but it could be more like a vigorous exercise, like getting the endorphins going and just really moving their body could be, I could even say, you know, self-care could sometimes be like watching a movie and just laughing, like getting really absorbed in something else. What else is coming to mind? I think anything that a person just feels really is like, nurturing or you know absorbs them in that way that's kind of that good absorption of your mind can be self-care i think that's what we're both pointing to is it can be anything <laughs> right so there's no right there's no right way to do it there's exactly just do it do something and i think the other piece that was kind of coming to my mind as you were talking about that is that we go back to that mindset piece i read probably sometime last year, this book that's called The Upside of Stress. I love it. Yeah, it's it's an interesting book because, you know, it was talking about the research of how we all think, you know, stress is bad and there's mm -hmm. all these things that say stress can kill you. And, you know, and as, as if that's not stressful enough to hear somebody say, well, stress can kill you. Well, great. I'm really stressed out. Now what am I supposed to do? Now I have to worry I'm going to die because I'm stressed. Right. And the, the research that um, the author shares in that book is really fascinating. You know, it's all about like people that were educated in this mindset of now it's just, you know, it's excitement and it's like energy you can use for something like their bodies responded completely differently than the people that were in that mindset of, oh, my goodness, this is dangerous. It's going to kill me. Yes, joy is as stressful as fear. We just interpret the signals totally differently. Mm-hmm, exactly. I had a woman once whose back went out as she visited her first grandson, first grandchild who was a grandson. And my d diagnosis from Chinese medicine point was excessive joy. The joy stressed her out. She thought it was lifting up this little eight-pound bundle of fun. <laughs> and I was like, no, it's just an eight-pound bundle of fun. It's like you, you burnt out your back. With mm -hmm. too, much, too much happiness. So we, we, we calmed down her joy in, with her heart protector meridian and her back pain reduced immediately, like 60%. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was remarkable. And I, I'm not saying, okay, don't have any joy because joy is stressful too. That's not what I'm saying. My point is <laughs> that how you interpret it, you know, she would, never would have thought of that as uh, requiring any recovery or rest from this amazingly joyful experience. Matter of fact, she just wanted more, more, more of it. Right? Couldn't get mm -hmm. enough of it. Right. Uh, the, the I guess I guess my point is kind of halfway in between the two. I hear exactly what you're saying that our interpretation of how our body feels makes a huge difference. If your mm -hmm. stomach is flip flopping. And you're walking down the aisle to get married. That's one interpretation. If your stomach's flip flopping and you're waiting, like you mentioned in your book, in a flimsy hospital gown in a cold, miserable waiting room or exam room, you're going to interpret that flip flop in a completely different way. Exactly. And sometimes that's a hard journey to get, I mean, from that place of thinking I'm, I'm waiting for the doctor to come in and examine me to being like, and I'm excited, you know? So it's, right. it's sometimes a subtle way of being like, okay, how can I shift that perspective just a little bit? 
Right. I think. Well, I think what you're pointing to is super important. It's like we're not talking about happy talk and just saying, you know, I love the steel table and I love the cold <laughs> and I love my gown. We're not talking about that, but we're talking about in these uh, these moments of life when we have a familiar body feeling and we assume it means something. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not really listening to our body. We're listening to our thoughts about our body. Mm-hmm. And yep, it's all being filtered through an interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We're not talking about happy talk here. You know, sometimes life is just painful and hard. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's the way it is. And and then we deal that. But the, the layering, the suffering we put on top of the hardship is the negotiable part. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I actually have a friend who we're going to be going up and visiting, and she has a terminal cancer diagnosis, and her attitude and, and her mindset is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen in a person. It's just inspiring to see, you know, that somebody that's been told, you know, you have X amount of time left, well, she's already lived well past that, and how she approaches every day is just, it's it gives me chills sometimes to think about it. You know, here's somebody who's not saying, Oh, poor me. You know, I only have four months left to live, but it's like, how can I really live these four months or however long I have? Cause obviously predictions are not right. A lot of the time. <laughs> I heard somebody say once, if your doctor gives you six months to live, find another doctor. who will give you more. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, well, and that, that all comes back to that belief. I mean, there's there's so many studies of, or stories of people that it's like if they buy right into that, you know, sometimes people die to that day, that exact, you know, four-month mark. And some people say, no, I'm not going to die in that amount of time. And they live, you know, even a couple years longer. So are you advocating people be non-compliant patients? <laughs> <laughs> So mindset sometimes, yeah. <laughs> I think, you know, not not getting into that place of believing everything that your doctor says is gospel truth when they how do they know? Do they have a crystal ball that's gonna tell you exactly the day that you die? Nobody knows that. You bring up a point that you also bring up in your book, and that's the placebo effect. So what are your mm-hmm. thoughts on that? Well, to me, it's just a, such a powerful example of how powerful the mind is. I, I, as I was working on the book, was just reading all of these interesting studies of placebo cases. And to me, it's just, it, it's proof that the mind has power, either in the positive or the negative. Um, I, I remember the one study that really stood out to me in all the reading was these there was a study of trying to determine what procedure for knee pain was the most effective. So they did two different types of surgery or procedures, and then they had another group. Of course, you have to have some sort of a control in a scientific study. And that group, they just made them think they had surgery. They didn't actually do anything. They just kind of went through the motions of putting them under and having like a little superficial incision. And those people did as well, if not better, than many of the people that actually had one of the two types of procedures they were testing. And they believed that so strongly that, you know, several years later, they still didn't know. Like, they finally revealed it. You were in the placebo group, and these people were like, well, I'm walking, and I'm playing basketball, and I'm doing all the things that I couldn't do before. So, who cares if I didn't have surgery? Yeah, exactly. It's funny, The in my mind, the placebo argument is an argument on research argument. The clinician re- truly, I feel, shouldn't care. I mean, mm-hmm. does, it, does it matter if you gave them a sugar pill or a real pill as long as they got better? Yep. You know, it's, it's really – and, you know, that's one of the dangers of, uh, quote-unquote, evidence-based medicine um, is it – one, it puts – physicians in straitjackets that they can't operate outside the guidelines. I don't mean physically operate, but just uh, run their practice outside of the guidelines without getting in trouble. You know, we run against that with Lyme all the time. The guidelines say two to four weeks antibiotics and good luck. 
you know, and they get literally get in trouble if they operate outside those guidelines. But there are guidelines for everything. Lyme disease is just one of them, one of the many right. things there. And there's there's no, you know, there's no opportunity to experiment or or for the physician to follow their intuition, let alone let alone do something, you know, that would influence just on, on the placebo level. My, my, the president of the acupuncture college I went to uh, the, kind of blew up placebos for me he said in, in such a way, he said, yeah, you know, when I go speak to uh, uh, gatherings of physicians and he had a good relationship with uh, the Johns Hopkins hospital, which was up the road and he was up there fairly often. He said, I often lead off by saying, you know, acupuncture might be the best and most elaborate placebo ever developed. Huh. And you know, he went on to say, you know, ex explain why he didn't think it was all placebo, but he just he conceded that point, and it it got us all thinking. And part of his point was, does doesn't matter if it works on the research side of things if it works in the clinic, like mm -hmm. you said with with the sham knee surgery, and I I've read that study before, and it's mind blowing because we don't we don't do sham studies because they're ethical problems on procedures very often. I don't know if you came across another, there was another one they did with, I think it was Parkinson's, but it may have been another brain issue where they did stem cell implants in the brain. Huh. And again, the placebo outperformed the intervention. You know, yeah. so so when we say you know first do no harm, that's a it's a bumper sticker. That medicine doesn't follow that that pathway very often at all because we don't we assume the intervention is is better than no intervention. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, and then the other thing that frustrates me too is you know when doctors want to discount other things because there haven't been you know big research studies, you know, like things on like nutrition. Well, who's going to pay for that, you know? But just because we haven't had a big research study on how an anti-inflammatory diet can hurt or can help people, it's being discounted because, you know, oh, we don't have a study to say that. Well, there's no pharmaceutical company to pay for yeah. for that study. <laughs> so Bill Gates or Zuckerberg, if you're listening, fund those studies because you've got extra bucks in the bank. Yes, exactly. It's like most of the people that are working on ground level of that sort of stuff, where do you have the money to fund a huge research study on, on those things? You don't. Right. And the other thing, we're kind of veering off topic here. I'll bring us back in a second. The other thing about these big studies is if we have biochemical individuality, in other words, the genetics or epigenetics or the expression of genes or enzymes is different in you than it is me, right? The whole one size does not fit all. If you take any one intervention, there's a really good chance that if you spread it over a large enough population, it's going to zero out, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's going to help some people, it's going to hurt some others, and then there's going to be the mushy middle. So you right. you take these interventions where they try to study a single nutrient and they do it you know there's always the preliminary studies and you, we hear about those oh it's so exciting and you know acai juice is going to be the next anti-cancer killing thing and then it gets studied in a large population and just it fizzles out and that's mm -hmm. just you know of course it's going to fizzle out <laughs> <laughs> You know, yep. And even a very good drug only works, I forget what the number is, 35, 40, like a blockbuster drug, I believe, works 40% of on the population. Wow. There's, there's just, and if, and if, please, if I'm wrong on that number, somebody straighten me out, but it's, it's not, it's a lot less than you think. You think a blockbuster mm -hmm. drug is going to help 90% of the people. It's not even close. It's wow. not even close. I, I mean, I believe it, but that number just is just. It's when you hear that, it just makes you go, wow. And we think, you know, or the mainstream thought is, oh, this is the solution to everything. It's just take a pill. Right. Well, right. And th that's why there are about 800 hypertension drugs because none of them really work. And so you have to take eight or nine of them and find one that does and doesn't kill your kidneys or kills your kidneys slower. And I'm not, anyway, I'm not trying to bash, I'm not trying to bash Western medicine because we do the same thing in the alternative world too. It's going to be like, oh, the latest thing is resveratrol or the latest thing is curcumin and it's going to cure everything. It's like, no, it doesn't work that way. 
No, you know, it may be incredibly helpful for you and it's worth trying, but you need to go in and listen to your body and not just assume you're having an, uh, a Herxheimer reaction. You may actually be having a toxic and negative reaction. I think the in some instances, a Herxheimer reaction is uh, overused as an excuse uh, to, to stick with something that, that isn't good for you. Hmm. Probably very true. So I've taken over the interview. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, no. It's great to have a good conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so let's kind of wrap this up and bring it back to your book. And if you could summarize this book in a couple minutes, what would you what would you say your purpose of writing this book is? Um, the first purpose was really partly to just share my own story of going through chronic illness and to really help people not feel so alone. So a lot of my clients or people who contact me, they relate to the story. And that's a beautiful starting place um, for a lot of people. And then it's really to shift a lot of mindset pieces, you know, as we mentioned about the placebo and all sorts of work on kind of belief systems, just really changing that mindset um, from believing that, you know, chronic illness means, okay, this is like a life sentence, you know, your life is over or, you know, your life is significantly reduced to, no, that doesn't have to be the reality. I mean, I've seen incredible things happen for people that Western medicine wouldn't lead you to believe possible and yet people heal. So I really want to share that as a message of hope. And then the last part of the book is just really some tools, some very simple tools that people can start to use to kind of, as you said, be the hero of their own story instead of being dependent on experts and practitioners and doctors. Thank you for that summary. I really appreciate it. And you offer coaching as well. So if somebody's listening to this and saying, wow, this really resonates with me, and I would love to have a conversation with Lynn, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, so I have uh, complimentary discovery sessions um, that are part of the way of kind of getting to know how I might be able to help you. Um, even if it's not a fit working with me, I try to empower you with a couple things you can walk away with. If you go to the homepage of the new website, there's a, a free consultation spot. Okay. And what's the URL? My website is bodytalkportland.com. Very cool. Lynn, thank you. You've been incredibly generous with your time. I really appreciate it. such a great interview. And you know, something that you were talking about in the middle really stuck with me about um, handling your emotions. And it actually reminded me of a musical that came out when I was 13. Really? Yeah. It was called Next to Normal. And well, it was about it was about something really tragic, actually. Um, but one of the things that was a part of the story um, was this woman had gone through something tragic. She couldn't handle her emotions, and so she, there was a whole sequence in which she her medication was being adjusted until the point where, at the end of it, she said, "I don't feel anything anymore." And that was that stability of not feeling anything was the was a good thing uh, at that point of time in the musicals. Like it before, I think this was like before like the second act or something like that. So there was, you know, there's in the course of the story, there's more tr trouble to come in. But it, it just goes to show that that's not really a healthy way to deal with things to just shut everything down. It's like, it's okay to have the stress of emotions and how she, how Lynn, tying it back to Lynn, um, talks about being connected with your body and being connected and being mindful of things is a really good way to be centered and experience what's going on and experience the stress of what's going on without being completely overwhelmed by it. Yes. I think I understand the point you're trying to make. Very simply said, but not easily done, is yes. you are not your diagnosis. You are not your thoughts. You are not your 
emotions. You are not the stress that's happening to you. You are not the stress. Well, yeah. Well, usually we think of stress as being internal, but it's and you're not your pain. And again, that's so easily said, so difficult to actually get to those points. But that's the beginning of the Lyme journey. As you begin to separate out yourself, your soul, your spirit from the events around you, that begins to give you some room to operate and control things a little bit. It puts you back in control. It reminds me of uh, Viktor Frankl's famous book that he wrote. I forget the title of it right now, but he was in a concentration camp. And basically had zero control over his environment, but got to the point where he found this place within himself. He found his soul. He found his spirit. And the guards and the situation could not take that from him. And he found peace there. So once again, he became the hero in a very tragic story. He ended up surviving, obviously, and writing the book. But that's the type of mental toughness that it takes and that to find that place of inner peace and silence in you is really the first step on healing for Lyme disease. So I encourage you, if you're overwhelmed, if you're feeling buried by the whole experience, that's the first step to do. I mean, I'm not saying don't you know go and to your appointments and things like that, but you have to start there to begin to really turn this thing around for yourself. So it's not an either or. But if you haven't done that work yet, if you don't have a place of peace that you're regularly able to find, I mean, we all get knocked off there, right? We all get distracted and dragged back into the drama. But if you don't have that place of peace that you can visit a couple times a week, uh, start doing that work there, like Lynn talks about. So give her a call or give somebody else a call and work on becoming the hero in your Lyme journey. All right. If you like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. And if you really like what we're doing, leave us a review on your podcast app. It helps us reach more people like you. And if you really, really like what we're doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, share this podcast with a friend. You might just save their life. Do you have feedback, suggestions for guests, really anything? Send an email to feedback at LimeNinjaRadio.com. And last, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know ninjas can cook minute rice in six seconds? Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.